a service mesh provides routing, load balancing, policy management, and other features to a set of services that need to communicate with each other. The mesh can simplify operations across these different services by providing an interface to configure them and to make settings like on these load balancing or policy management aspects of services. And there are lots of different vendors who offer service mesh technology. AWS has App Mesh, Google has Istio, which is open source, Buoyant has Linkerd, which is also open source, HashiCorp has Console Connect, and unfortunately, not all of these service meshes play well together. They don't necessarily communicate with each other. Luke Kaisau is an engineer at HashiCorp, where he works on Console Connect, and he joins the show to talk about service mesh usage, adoption, and possible strategies for maintaining multiple service meshes within a single organization. Of course, at a large enough company, these different teams setting up different service meshes is troublesome, and it would be useful for these different meshes to be able to communicate with each other. Before we start, I want to mention I am looking for companies to invest in. If you're building a, a company for developer tools or a company that requires heavy engineering, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And also, if you are looking to write for Software Engineering Daily, you can send an email to write at softwareengineeringdaily.com or jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. I'd love to hear from you. Luke Kaiso, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's 2020. Describe what role a service mesh plays in 2020. Yeah, well, I think, you know, this all started back when we started on this path to, to microservices. And people were, were looking for ways to manage kind of this exploding complexity because you now have like N apps and you need to manage all the infrastructure for that. And that's where, where Kubernetes came out of. And that's just enabled this complexity to keep going. And so the where where service mesh is, it's 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 a recognition a recognition that that the network was the next place where we needed to put software in between everything. And so where the service mesh comes in is eventually you reach this level of complexity where you need a higher level of tools to, to manage things. And so for putting Docker containers on a, on a host, you know, eventually we were like, okay, well we need a higher level tool to manage this. So Kubernetes or, or Nomad, I think you're reaching the same conclusion where you're like, okay, well now we have all these things running everywhere and in disparate networks, you know, these networks don't necessarily communicate with one another. Some of them have duplicate IPs where our apps are, our application lifestyle is a uh, life cycle is more complicated. And so I think that's where, where service mesh comes in and it's like, okay, well, you know, we can't hard code these things in our app. We need, you know, operators are managing, you know, thousands of services. We need this higher level of abstraction, this programmability of, of our network of where these calls are going so we can we can manage these things better. And so I think that's where service mesh comes in in 2020. Who wants a service mesh? Does everybody need it? Or are there some cases where some lover of abstractions and unnecessary complexity and I've installed my service mesh and I'm instantly regretting it? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question because I think the answer is, is not everyone wants a service mesh nor, nor needs a service mesh. And that's also probably why, although there is a lot of a lot of work going on in this area, the, the actual production usage isn't really there. 
uh, and not taking up at the speed that we saw something like Kubernetes happen. Anecdotally, I was at like the service mesh con at, at KubeCon last year, which is, you know, you'd think a room full of people that are kind of on the cutting edge of service mesh. And uh, it's probably 200 people in the room and they asked, you know, put up your hands if you're running service mesh in production and probably like 10 or 20 people will put up their hands. So I think that is an example of like how people don't necessarily need a service mesh right off the bat. And you're going to add a lot of complexity when you start putting proxies in front of everything. And so I think that the folks that, that need a service mesh, usually like the, the service mesh usage kind of starts at the edge. It's like, okay, I don't need it within my kube cluster, but I need it to connect my VMs to my kube cluster or my other kube cluster to another kube cluster. And so you start to see the mesh happen around the edges. And then as that starts to be useful, then you can see it come into play within within the apps themselves where you're running like proxies everywhere in your kube cluster. So I think you got to reach a level of complexity where it's worth taking on that additional complexity so you do get those higher level uh, constructs that you can you can program. And you also need you know a team of people that is ready to to spend time to dedicate to operating this this mesh. So you're looking at like some some larger organizations, I, I would say, as when you, it starts to come become really useful. What needs to be configured when I'm setting up a service mesh? Yeah, I think like the first place to start is you, at least most of the service meshes, you need a proxy in front of all of your apps, which is really easy in Kubernetes and, and pretty hard on, on some of the other platforms. Um, so that's kind of like the, the first place that, that you start is, okay, well, how am I going to deploy this proxy uh, alongside my apps? And in Kubernetes, this is really, really easy. All the service meshes will have this mutating webhook where every time you schedule a new pod, it'll come in there and it'll just add in a sidecar to there. And that's that now you have your, your, your proxy running alongside your app. And then once you have that, it's a, it's a matter of the control plane that controls like what happens, like what that proxy does when it receives traffic. And so you know, in Kubernetes, this is just running like an, 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 a, deploy, a deployment. So those are kind of like the, the two pieces that that kind of you need to have in order to to start using the service mesh. And then you need, you know, a use case and, and something that you want to do with it, be it, you know, taking out metrics or doing canary deployments, blue-green deployments, or doing migrations or a failover. So those are kind of the components. You work at HashiCorp. Describe HashiCorp's strategy around service mesh thus far. Yeah, so... HashiCorp is an interesting path towards it because we've had console, which has been our, our networking and service discovery tool for, for a really long time now. And that, that kind of cut its teeth in the day where folks were moving to a lot of infrastructure as code and they were running you know microservices and lots of nodes and VMs and bringing those up. And there started to be more than just like four servers in your DC. You started to have like hundreds of thousands of servers. And so that's where console came along, where it was the idea where you run console on all of your nodes, you now know <laughs> what all of your nodes were, because this is before schedulers, and uh, you know what services are running on them, and you can use, you know, we, we detect failure, and, and that's used to, to route to all your different services across your, across your data center. So that's where we started, and then we started seeing, you know, Kubernetes, the rise of Kubernetes come, and it's the same kind of problem where you have these, these nodes coming in and out of existence, and you need to track them. However, now these are pods that are coming in and out of existence and you need to track them. And what HashiCorp's vision for pretty much all our, our products is multi-cloud. The idea, multi-cloud and multi-platform. So the idea that you can use the same tool, the same workflow across multiple clouds and multiple platforms. So whether you're provisioning an EKS cluster, an AKS cluster, or VMs, you can use Terraform. 
whether you're provisioning, where you, whether you're storing like secrets in a database or you're storing like certificates, you can use Vault. So, so HashiCorp's vision for console is, you know, wherever your app is running, we own the network for that app, and we help you connect uh, your workloads together and monitor those 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 network workloads and and know where they are. And so that's kind of where HashiCorp's vision is going for Service Mesh. And so that really fit with console, where we were already tracking where your apps were at and what their addresses were. And so it made sense to to expand into into Kubernetes and, and worked in like a Kubernetes native way for that. Describe the conversations that you have with customers around people who are deploying and operating a service mesh. What is useful to them? What is extraneous? What are the difficulties? Tell me about the actual case studies. Yeah, for sure. So I think a lot of it is developer-driven. So, you know, the operators are, are like, here, we have some kube clusters for you. And the, and the developers are like, okay, but I want to do the stuff that I've been reading about with service meshes. So I want to do canary deployments and I want to, I want to see all my metrics for, for all my apps. And I want to, I want to help with migrating with making these big uh, routing changeovers. So that's, that's definitely one of the big use cases where the developers are coming to the operators and they're like, Hey, I want a service mesh in my Kubernetes cluster. And then from the operator's perspective, they're thinking around like, okay, well now I have team A and team B and they're running different Kubernetes clusters, um, but they have to call each other services. Well, how am I going to allow this routing to work? Am I going to need to have thousands of firewall rules between pods with IPs that don't exist? So they're looking at it often from like this security perspective. How can I, you know, ensure that this traffic is going to be encrypted um, without having to like manage like massive PKI infrastructure on my own? So those are definitely some of the use cases that are coming up. And then you also just have, again, like things aren't getting less complex; they're getting more complex. So you're having multiple Kubernetes clusters now, and so the operators are, are looking for a way to manage kind of all this complexity in, in one place and have kind of a global view of everything. There are different service meshes. You've got HashiCorp console, there's Glue, there's Istio, there's Linkerd. What's the current comparative diagnostic of the different service meshes? Yeah, for sure. I'm obviously not an expert in, in, in Istio and, and Linkerd, but so I, but I think like the general view is maybe say it in like a couple words, like what's the tagline? So for, for Linkerd, I think it is user experience and simplicity. For Istio, it is, it has all the features. And, and for console, it is multi-platform. That's kind of, I think, a good summation of, of where, where they're at and what, what kind of they're targeting. To dig into it further, console, we're really focused on on running across multiple platforms. Kind of that was like our ethos of HashiCorp is like one workflow, not one tool, right? And so we're focused on being able to run on VMs just as well as we, we run on, on Kubernetes. And then I think from the Istio side, it, it's incredibly fully featured service mesh and you can basically do anything you want in it. That does trade off complexity I and mean, it's a little bit harder to configure maybe. that That's definitely one of his biggest strengths. Things. And then from Linkerd's side, I think they're... They're focused, really focused on, on the user experience, on statistics, and being able to kind of like see see stuff out of the service mesh really, really easily, and and having an, a really nice like install and, and user experience workflow. So I think that's kind of where I would say the the three products are at. So one of the reasons we are having this conversation is due to a uh, discussion around multi mesh. So the concept that 
I have my billing service somewhere in the company. You may have the checkout service elsewhere in the company. Each of us has our own Kubernetes cluster. Each of us has our own strategy for how we want to manage the inter-service communication. We have our own preferences for how we want to do service proxying, our own preferences for how we want to do service mesh. And that said, we may need to inter interoperate with each other. Uh, the billing service may need to interact with the checkout service, so those services may need to call each other. Therefore, we need to have some interoperability between these different services. And if I've got an Envoy proxy and I need to communicate with an Nginx proxy elsewhere, maybe there's some interoperability issues. So how interoperable are the different service meshes? Yeah, so right now, I don't think they are interoperable. And so if you if you had like your billing service and checkout service in two different kube clusters and one was running Istio and one was running console, I think you'd have to look at like ingress uh, as kind of like you exit the service mesh in terms of you're not being encrypted with like the, the TLS for that for that mesh and you're not subject to the routing rules for that mesh. And so you're just ingressing into uh, another service mesh the same way you would ingress if that service mesh didn't exist and you were just ingressing into a service that was just running there. Um, so right now the meshes aren't are not uh, interoperable. And so that's kind of one of the reasons there's a project coming out of uh, VMware called Hamlet. And this is the idea of, of multi-mesh federation. So a protocol that each mesh can, can um, implement that will allow meshes to share the list of services that they have and to route between uh, different meshes without necessarily having to like you know come in like your uh, through an API gateway or something like that like basically exit exit your your data structure data center, so that's kind of where we're at right now. This project, I mean, it's being um, pioneered by VMware, but um, there's a bunch of folks looking at the spec. Google's looking at it. HashiCorp's looking at it. Um, Pivotal has been contributing to it, and so that's kind of a nascent project, and we'll see where that goes. Um, but that is kind of looking to to solve this problem of multi-mesh. And I think, I mean, being candid, I think each mesh would prefer that, you know, you just run their mesh everywhere. But I think the reality of it is that you are going to have these multi-mesh environments either because of acquisition where you you acquire a company that's running a different mesh and you now need to talk to those services or because of massive organizations where one side of the organization has chosen this one mesh and it's kind of deeply ingrained in, into their infrastructure. Yeah, so I, I think you are going to reach these 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 situations where we do need the the ability to to have mesh federation. Mesh federation. So there's already people listening who are probably saying, "Oh my god, this service mesh thing is such unnecessary overhead." And now you're going to tell me I've got to put additional federation infrastructure. Can we just level set again? Like, is this extra overhead? Do we really need all this stuff? Yeah, I think you only need it. If it, it just always a trade-off, right? And that's the, that's the thing with everything. And so if you if you want to be able to control the network between these these clusters programmatically, then and you have valid reasons for doing so, then you are going to need something there, right? There's a lot of really powerful things you get out of out of running meshes and, and federating them together. You get like a unified metrics, you get to be able to use the same routing rules you're used to to do multi-cluster like uh, canaries and uh, migrations. 
So I, I think you're right that like listeners should should be a little bit worried about this and take it, you know, with a grain of salt and, you know, think about like, okay, well, do I actually need to federate these meshes or can I just, can I just treat that other, that checkout service running in, in this other cluster as like, just like another API endpoint, like Twitter or Facebook's API and just call it directly and they'll, they'll put up in a little balancer for me. But then you need to immediately deal with, okay, well, how do we do security? So how does uh, certificates work? How can we do MTLS between those two apps? Okay, so now we need some function that's going to start provisioning these certificates between these two clusters. And so I think as you do get into the weeds there, you realize that, oh, we do need something here that's going to help us manage this complexity. And so, yeah, it does It does definitely sound a, a bit like over the top on, on the face of it. But I think once you dig into the, into the problems that you might want to solve, you do run into the need in some cases, uh, for this complexity, because it does solve a lot of the complexity that you're going to be facing anyway. Let's get into some of the work that you have been doing with console. So in terms of implementing a service mesh, has the sidecar started to take on any additional roles these days? Like the last last time I did a lot of coverage of the service mesh, there was uh, kind of the security management where you, you kind of have a the service mesh is is doing some uh, access control management. You have the telemetry. You have the potential uh, congestion management, like uh, exponential back off and retry and uh, redirecting to to backup service instances, things like that. And perhaps now federation is is another role that the service proxy is playing. Tell me more about what the sidecar is doing these days. Yeah, I think. I think the biggest development that we've seen is the, um, at least on the Envoy proxy side, is this idea of a web assembly. So, this is the ability to to write code in in any language that can compile down to to web assembly, and have it run in the in the request path on the proxy. Like the proxy is running this code for you. So, it's pretty exciting a uh, development. I mean, this is again kind of like where. If complexity rises to a point where you need software involved, this is kind of where that where that's solved. And so you could see something where companies could write their own custom authentication policies, where they have some very very you know peculiar um, requirements. Where you know if a request comes in at like slash Jeff, then it has to use this TLS certificate and needs to have like this bearer token. And then if it comes in at like slash Luke, you know, we're going to do JWT authentication or something like that. Something that would be very, very hard to encode in a CRD and have the service mesh do. What if we can can write this code ourselves, uh, compile it down to WebAssembly and distribute it to all of our Envoy proxies and Envoy will, will run this and, and decide right there at the proxy, right at that level, um, whether that request uh, is allowed to be come through the service or not so that's kind of one of the one of the cool things that, that i think we see starting to come out now solo it has us their own i think it's called like something hub where it's the idea where you know people can can share this a community of WebAssembly plugins that, that people can use so i think you've kind of nailed like the main use cases and the proxy hasn't really evolved too much beyond that um, but WebAssembly is definitely something that's just coming down the pipe what about issues with deploying the mesh? Are there any uh, usability issues that, well, I guess we should get into specifically with console. So when you see people trying to deploy the mesh, are there any usability issues that you've uh, managed to to make simpler? I imagine there's some people in the audience who have tried to deploy a service mesh and have, have gotten frustrated by the process. So maybe there's some usability issues to simplify. 
Yeah, for sure. I, I think the the biggest problem you have with with deploying a mesh is that if it if it works, you don't know. So if it's running and the proxies are all transferring traffic uh, as expected, then there's no immediate output necessarily. So you know everything is just the same. It's one of those classic like demos where you know, hey, look, I did this big migration and nothing changed, so therefore you know it was successful. So for that. Uh, what we look at is, is is having the ability to see like the health of these different parts, like the proxies and that are going through the um, the service meshes being used for. We also look at you know how do we get these statistics out to to users so they can see that look okay, now you're actually seeing stats coming through. So therefore you know the proxies are, are in the request path and they're receiving traffic. So that's kind of one of the one of the big things is like it's so it's so transparent that you don't really know if it's working. And then the other thing that that we're really focused on from from the console side is okay kubernetes in general is a lot easier to deploy a service mesh into because you have the ability to basically mutate the everything that you're deploying into your into your cluster but if we look at other platforms like vms it's it's a lot harder to provision and deploy these service meshes if you look at a lot of them they're very focused on kubernetes and if you're running in vms you're doing things like editing etsy hosts or you're manually provisioning like for every vm that comes up you're manually provisioning a crd into your kube cluster so it can actually see that vm or you're like having kube config on 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 the on the vm so that it can like talk to kube api and so that's where a lot of our ux focus is is how can we make the experience on vms and on kubernetes and on the next platform the same and so Luckily, we have like uh, you know many many years of console working great on VMs, and so we're we have the ability to tie into automatically detecting when when new VMs come up and when they die, doing failure detection there through gossip, and so that's another uh, place where we're looking at the UX. So tell me about your work specifically. What have you built within console? Me personally. Yeah. What do you work on? Yeah. So I'm on the console Kubernetes team. So my focus is on making console work great on a very cube native way on, on Kubernetes. So over the past uh, year and a half that I've worked there, we've worked on a lot on, on the on the bring up UX. So console has a lot of interesting pieces to it because it used to run only on VMs. And so we've worked a lot on having all these things automated when you install console into Kubernetes. So you have a very, very simple like you just run install on the Helm chart and, and you're up and running. Uh, we worked a lot on the security side of things, so making sure that you have TLS between all the different components, uh, you have ACLs enabled because console has its, its own ACL system. And recently, what I've been really working on is the federation piece. So multiple Kubernetes clusters and multiple VM clusters kind of all joining together and in a secure way and in a really easy way to to get it all up and running. So just recently, we released a feature that I'm really excited about where in basically four steps, you can take a Kubernetes cluster running on any cloud and a Kubernetes cluster running on any other cloud or a VM cluster. And you can federate them together in four steps and boom, you can now route from one pod on one cluster all the way over to another pod on another cluster across the public internet if you want to with full MTLS security between those pods, even though they're on different networks. And it's just really easy to set up. So that's something I've been working on recently. Console started as basically a lock server, if I recall correctly, similar to, to Chubby. It has had this strange progression to becoming a service mesh platform. Can you recast why 
that happened or, or reiterate why that happened? Why did it go from being a, a lock server, like an etcd kind of thing, to becoming a service mesh? Yeah, so I think like for the longest time, console has been known as a distributed key value store is kind of what, what his tagline was. And I think what we saw is, you know, okay, well now in order to use this distributed key value store, you have like these these client agents across all of your nodes. And then it was kind of this natural place for, for service discovery. So why don't we have those services register with those client agents? So it did evolve from like a KV store, a key value store to a service discovery mechanism where you register your service when it comes up on, on, on your node, and then you can use DNS to, to route between the services. And you have an API now where you can ask, like, where are my services and how healthy they are and, you know, add health checks and all that stuff. And so, you know, that, that was kind of where it started. And so but then we saw folks using, using Kubernetes, and you didn't really need that service discovery mechanism anymore because that's part of Kubernetes. So Kubernetes has its own DNS, just the way console has console DNS. What we did still see was people were using console as like a homegrown service mesh. And I, before I joined HashiCorp, was doing the same thing. So we had Nginx running and we had console template. So console template is a tool that will take the information in console and will write out config files. And so what we wanted was the ability for us to talk to the local Nginx server running on any node, and we could use a path to route to a service wherever that service was running. So for instance, like slash billing would go to the billing service, slash checkout would go to the slash checkout service. And so the services would be kind of, they wouldn't need to know about where all these other services are and you won't have any problems with DNS, like latency and TTLs if the service has changed. And so we use console for that because console knew where all our services were. So you already had this kind of, this use case for console where it's like, okay, well, it knows where all the services are and now I have the need for a mesh either through migrations or for, for reliability or just because I want that program, pro, sorry, programmability. Like I, I have these, my complexity is such a level that I need to be able to program it. And so it was this natural fit for us to look at, okay, well, you know, folks are already doing this with console. They're already hooking up console template and HA proxy and Nginx to build these kind of homegrown service meshes. Why don't we start doing this for them? Because there's a whole bunch of problems that you can't really solve when you're just hooking up console with Nginx, like uh, certificates and MTLS and rotation and authorization and things like that. And so that's where console kind of naturally evolved. And we actually focused first on, on L4. So the first release of console connect, uh, which was what we called the service mesh, was focused only on, on L4 connections. So basically like, can this service make a connection over to this service? Yes or no? And it used MTLS for that, but it wasn't really focused on a lot of the L7 so stuff around around routing based on HTTP headers or about retries and things like that. So we were very focused on, on like security because that's a lot what we were hearing for our customers was they had these you know all these environments, all these firewall rules, where everything was changing really quickly, and they they already had this information in console. So why can't console also figure out like whether service A can route to service B? And that kind of got us on the path of service mesh, and then we've continued on, on from there. Have there been any challenges that technical, technical implementation challenges that come to mind? So I can think of all these things you need to build, service discovery, routing, security features, uh, heterogeneous environments. You know, you need to handle containers and VMs. What's, what's a particularly difficult implementation challenge you've had to build around? Yeah, I think definitely the implementation challenge of having certificates be distributed and be refreshed and having the ability to rotate like the the root CA and cross sign um, and have all these certificates pushed out. That was definitely a, a pretty complicated challenge. And then 
The other one that, that comes to mind is, as we talked about, uh, how console has been around for a while. It's been around from before Kubernetes. Um, the console model of what a service is doesn't match up directly with what K Kubernetes model of what a service is. So for instance, in Kubernetes, you have a pod, which is part of the deployment. And then you have a service, which has endpoints. And then in console, we have a service and we have service instances. And so I think that's been an interesting challenge is how do we kind of mesh as the, the operative word there? How do we mesh these two views of the world in a way where we can still have the same experience on, on VMs and, and over there that we do have on Kubernetes? And how do we kind of map those two concepts between the, between each other? So that's uh, been definitely an area of, of work that we've had to do. How do you monitor a service mesh deployment, specifically console? So console outputs metrics just the same as, as, as many of the service meshes. So you can, it has like an endpoints that you can call with Prometheus to scrape those endpoints, or you can hook it up with Datadog to scrape those endpoints and get all those metrics out. Because we run Envoy Proxy, it has all the same metrics that, that you expect from, from something like Istio. So you hook up Prometheus uh, usually to scrape the, the Envoy endpoint and uh, pull out those metrics, and then you can go from there. You can build your dashboard, and you can do the same thing with Datadog or any of your other metrics uh, tools of choice. And nodes in console are communicating over a gossip layer. Have there been any difficulties in, in implementing that gossip layer, or have there been any updates to the gossip layer? Yeah, so just for, so to help your viewers like understand, so gossip, console has this idea of a gossip layer where all the nodes in your data center are all talking to one another. And because it would be ridiculous, we have data centers with like tens of thousands of nodes for every node to talk to every other node. It has this idea of gossip where one node can talk to another node and ask like, hey, are you okay? And then if it doesn't hear from that node, it will then talk to another node and be like, hey, is node Jeff okay? I, I didn't hear from him. And this, it won't talk to every other node, but eventually all the information will kind of get gossiped throughout the cluster and, and everyone will be kind of converged on a state with just like, okay, well, the Jeff node hasn't responded. So I, we think he, he's in trouble. So yeah, when we look at kind of running in Kubernetes, you don't really need that anymore because Kubernetes is a source of truth. Kubernetes knows uh, whether your nodes are, are down or not. Kubernetes knows whether your pods are healthy or not. So that has been uh, an interesting place for us where right now we, we still run the gossip layer in Kubernetes and we still kind of have our source of truth for whether Kubernetes nodes are up or down. And luckily, like the way Kubernetes works, usually the, they converge upon the same, the same answer, which is like the node is down. But Kubernetes does it a different way with like Kubelet reporting out. But I think... What we are looking towards is, especially as we go to like other platforms, is the ability to farm out this 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 gossip layer to the the where we're running the orchestrator, and we not need to run it ourselves for failure detection. Instead, just rely upon like the Kubernetes API to tell us whether something's up or down. But right now, we do run the gossip layer in Kubernetes. Let's talk about multi mesh in practice as you have seen it. So you've laid out earlier that you think we are headed towards a world or we already already are in a world where there is this mesh federation issue. What does that mean for the developers of service meshes such as yourself? Yeah, I, I do think it is a very a future, a future problem that we need to kind of be ahead of now, but I don't think you're going to, I mean, as I talked about at the beginning of the show, you know, a lot of folks aren't even running one service mesh. 
let alone multiple. So I do think it's a problem that kind of is pretty far in the future, but something that we need to kind of get ahead of now. And so as a service, and that's kind of like what we're, our job is as service mesh uh, developers. And so I think what it, what it means is we're going to have this kind of agreed upon spec and way to interoperate with different service meshes. Um, the same way, you know, you have the ingress controller in Kubernetes where all the different ingress controllers can basically, they use the one ingress spec and they, they, they implement that and you can switch and switch out these ingress controllers uh, for each other, kind of. <laughs> There's lots of annotations probably involved with switching them. So I think you're going to look at kind of that where you'll have a standardized spec that everyone will implement. And then the interesting part comes in is whether, so we're talking about federation between say two Kuba clusters and two different service meshes. And so now you implement this spec that allows you to federate. So the Istio cluster can talk to the console cluster. But does console use that same spec within its own service mesh when you're doing console to console communication, right? Does Istio use that same spec within two different Istio clusters? That's an interesting part. I think often, you know, these commonality specs, they they lose a lot of kind of the the special sauce of each of each mess, kind of like the the SMI spec where which is the service mesh interface spec where the idea was you'd have one CRD that would be implemented by the different meshes. And I think one of the problems with that is that, you know, then if you have special sauce that you want to layer on top, you the users can't really access that. So I think that is one of the challenges that we need to think about is is like how do we start to layer? We can yes, we can implement these specs, but then do we actually use them internally within our own mesh? What would that standardized interface look like? How would the meshes be talking to each other? Yeah, so there's a couple of pieces to it. So one is which services do you have over there? So there's like uh, basically like an endpoint you call and be like, hey, give me your list of services. And then it's okay. Well, now I have this list of services. How do I talk to that service? So what endpoint do I call from my from my service mesh over here? And then you have a whole other problem, which is very complicated around around uh, identity and security. So you are not going to be running. If you look at the way federation works across, like but within the same mesh, but different clusters within the same mesh, often you're required to share the same root CA. So each mesh can decrypt and encrypt each other's traffic, right? But when you're talking about, you know, different meshes, they're not going to be running the same CA. And you probably don't want to be running the same C, um, certificate authority for all your meshes. And so there's this whole other layer of, well, how do I trust that this request coming from this other mesh, which is encrypted with a different CA, how do I even decrypt that traffic? And how can I authorize against that? And that's the, uh, the topic of like spiffy. Federation, uh, which is being worked on by the folks over at, uh, I think, Cytale. And so that's the idea of like, well, how can we... Acquired now. I think they got acquired by oh, HP. Oh, did they? Okay. Well, good to know. I hope they're still working on it because it's definitely a, a topic uh, that we need solved. So yeah, like, sure. there's like the sharing of services. There's like the endpoint. Okay, well, how do I actually talk to that service? And then there's the the issue of, of authentication or sorry, like TLS encryption. Like how do you, how do you exchange these certificates and decrypt each other's traffic? How do you rotate those certificates? How do you trust that the first certificate that you got from that other cluster was actually the right one? You know, kind of that first step, that bootstrapping problem. So those are kind of like the, the things that you need to solve when we look at mesh federation. And do you think there's going to be some kind of diplomatic effort? Like do you expect to be some CNCF sort of diplomacy around standardizing this stuff, or do you just expect it to be worked out by itself? Yeah, I don't hundred percent know. I'm a little bit more on, on the ground implementing the spec than, than, than on like the, the politics side of things. 
but I think I mean, you look at it, you're, you're thinking, okay, well, if you're a mesh vendor and you implement this federation spec, then does that mean that folks don't need to use your mesh everywhere, which is probably what your desire is, right? Because they can just federate with whatever mesh they want. But on the other hand, it could be good because maybe somebody wouldn't want to use your mesh in a certain situation because they they can't interoperate it with the one they're already running, but now they could use your mesh and and, and then they interoperate it with their mesh. So I think that's probably like the considerations that are being done, being done on, on, the, on the business side. I don't know if it'll be part of a, of a CNCF project or a foundation of some sort, but I would imagine like like any kind of open, like whatever happened with SMI spec, wherever that, where that, I think that is lived in like a public GitHub repo and anyone can tr- contribute to it. I think I could see that the same thing kind of happening for, for Hamlet, for the mesh federation spec. Wait, so the, the service mesh interface spec, how does that differ from, from what you're working on with Hamlet? Yeah, for sure. It is definitely kind of hard to piece the two apart. So the SMI spec is the idea that within my one cluster, I can set up intent. I can set up like authorization rules. I can set up L7 like canary rules. I can set up like a retry rules. And instead of setting these things up using like the Istio CRD or the console CRD or the Linkerd CRD, I create these rules using this SMI, the service mesh interface common CRD. And then if I were to swap out my meshes, then they would work the same way. So that's within one cluster. And then the idea with, with Hamlet, with, with the Service Mesh Federation, is where you have like you're st- you, you only have one mesh running in one cluster and one mesh running in another cluster. How do those two communicate with one another? And it's not really dealing with the routing rules. It's more just about like, can I just share these services so I know where they are and then therefore I can route to them? So it's more focused on like sharing uh, what exists between the clusters and making sure the certificates can work for that communication. Talking more about what you have specialized in specifically, which is Kubernetes and getting console working well with Kubernetes. Tell me about that implementation and the the Kubernetes ecosystem more broadly. What have been the engineering difficulties in building console for Kubernetes or targeting the Kubernetes platform for console? Yeah. So I think a lot of the difficulties and the challenges stem from how the console model of the world doesn't 100% mesh with the Kubernetes model of the world. And so we need to kind of deal with that. So one example would be that the way console was originally built was the idea where you have these, you're provisioning these AMIs, you know what service is going to run on that AMI. And so you include along with that service deployment, a config file that describes the service name, the port that it's available on and any metadata. And so that is actually deployed, like it's a config file that lives on disk. And when console also starts at the same node, it reads that config file and it tells the rest of the cluster, hey, I have this service running on, on my node, right? So it's a little bit different where each node is saying, here's what I have running on it. But when you look at the Kubernetes world, it doesn't work like that. Kubernetes tells the node, here's what you're going to run on, right? So it has that information about what is running in the cluster at, at, at the centralized level versus the console's original model was it has that information on each node. So it's a decentralized model. And it just trusts that the node says, oh, I'm running the service. Okay, cool. So when we look over at Kubernetes, well, we don't know. The nodes that get provisioned, they don't have anything on them. They don't know what service they're going to run on them, right? 
So luckily, console has an API. So when a pod comes up now, we tell console, hey, this service is, is running on you now. And when the, when the pod uh, exits, we tell console, hey, that service is no longer running on you. So that's one, one example of, of how we had to kind of change uh, the way we run on Kubernetes. And the other example is there's like ACLs, for instance. So console has its own concept of ACLs, whereas Kubernetes, everything is tied to a service account. So how does that mesh with Kubernetes? So when a, when a pod comes up, what service does it authenticate with or as into console, right? So console has its own concept of ACL. So what ACL token does this service get? And so we basically pair the service account with an ACL token. And so we kind of need to meld these two concepts together. So that's a lot of what, what our work does is how do we translate kind of console concepts into Kubernetes concepts in a way that makes sense for Kubernetes users. It's a lot of work, but what you do get is when you are running on VMs or on the next platform, you have this kind of, this this idea of ACLs can work the exact same way across all these different platforms. And so, you know, it's a little bit harder to get it working on Kubernetes in the first place, but then once it is working, you're gonna have the same user experience, the same workflow, whether you're on VMs or on Kubernetes or whatever the next platform may be. I'd like to take a step back and talk about HashiCorp more generally, because it's uh, in a position in the software ecosystem. It's sort of like a Switzerland. Nobody really competes with HashiCorp, or maybe that's a way of saying that everybody competes with HashiCorp. So just a few random questions about HashiCorp. First of all, Nomad. Nomad is this scheduling system that came out around the time of the container orchestration wars. And as I understand, people still use Nomad, and it has some design differences between Kubernetes. I know you're not on the Nomad team, but just from being at the company, I imagine you have some perspective. Why are still people using Nomad? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a little bit timely because Cloudflare recently wrote a blog article where they use Nomad uh, extensively for everything. And that's 10% of the internet going through Nomad, essentially. So there's a lot of people using Nomad. I think a lot of the reasons is there's a little bit of a backlash over the, the complexity of running Kubernetes. If you can run it in, in a cloud and they handle that complexity for you, then that's all well and good. But if you're somewhere like Cloudflare or you're running your own data centers, Kubernetes is very, very complex to, to run and to manage. And Nomad is uh, very focused on kind of the user experience and simplicity and only doing one thing, kind of the Unix philosophy, like doing one thing, doing one thing well. So it's very focused on scheduling. That's what it does. It doesn't try to do a bunch of other stuff, which it, people do need in some use cases, but other folks who have other uh, solutions for those things like service discovery or secrets or whatever, like for Vault, they might use, be using Vault for secrets. They are happy to just pick a platform like Nomad that just does that one thing and does that one thing extremely well. Nomad also has a little bit of a different design. So it was originally focused on extremely fast scheduling. So we had this like this C10,000K problem where we could like schedule 10,000 services in like seconds uh, because we use an algorithm of like optimistic scheduling where it just like, it automatically assumes that it can be scheduled and it kind of can dole out these tasks really quickly. So it does have a different use case. Uh, it's still heavily used by a lot of different companies. You know, it's making money. It, it more than pays for the engineering team. And it does make sense for HashiCorp to keep working on it. And we're still pushing kind of more and more features into it. And it's becoming more feature rich. And I think a lot of folks are are looking at it as they turn away from the kind of the complexity of Kubernetes. Very interesting. So what is it like being at HashiCorp 
these days. Tell me more about some of the goings on in the the changes in the product development. Yeah, it's a really exciting place to to be in. It's kind of that hockey stick growth that we're seeing right now. So I think it, it's interesting. We're seeing a lot of a lot of pickup for some of our products. So for instance, Terraform. Terraform is the de facto way to provision infrastructure. So that's pretty cool. I mean, that's something that's like, you know, everybody who's provisioning infrastructure, most of them are going to do it through Terraform. And so now what we're looking at for that is to make the experience a little bit better. We have a Terraform cloud, which is the ability to like collaborate on infrastructure um, in a web UI and, and work with a bunch of developers and a bunch of organizations and set up security rules and everything. So you can't just like spin up like EC2 massive instances. So we have like each product is kind of is kind of doing really well in and of itself. So Vault is the de facto way to store secrets. If you're thinking about like a secret, most folks are thinking, okay, well, how do I put this into Vault? And so we're really seeing all these products accelerate, have more and more users and more and more features. And then the other thing that we're we're really working on is this idea of cloud. So more and more what we're seeing is companies don't want to run these really complicated and important core infrastructure tools themselves they they don't have enough people to do it or they just know that that's not their specialty they don't want to be the experts in running in running vault they would just want someone to run vault for them or someone to run console for them and so we've had a big and a big investment in our cloud team and the idea of the cloud team is that we will manage our tools for users we have an SRE team that's on call for them, ensure they're up and running. And just like you can like click button, get an RDS instance in Amazon, you can click button, get a console installation that's running in your infrastructure, but is managed by us. So that's another big, big shift for us. What do you see as the competitive dynamic between HashiCorp and the major cloud providers? Yeah, HashiCorp has really, really good relationships with, with all the cloud providers, and which is interesting. I, th- I think that's like hats off to, to Armand and Mitchell and Dave and kind of the executive team as, as they're building these relationships. So like HashiCorp helps the cloud providers because if you take an example of Terraform, we're helping people run a ton of stuff on those clouds, right? So we're helping the cloud providers like sell more to their customers. So from that perspective, you know, it's, it's really good for them. And we're helping people migrate these these apps to the cloud and big build bigger deployments into the cloud. And so that's all really, really good for the, for the cloud providers. So we do have a, a pretty good relationship with the cloud providers. And then I think one thing that's interesting with this whole HashiCorp cloud platform, which is the idea that we run a managed service uh, for you on the clouds, is there was kind of like this interesting war, I would almost, between open source companies and the clouds. And I think you covered it pretty well on some of your shows, where... The clouds, some of them were like kind of like building their own managed services and, and selling those to their customers using an open source technology. And then the open source technology, that was kind of one of the ways they made their money, which was building these managed services and selling them. And so there was kind of this like big like licensing war where <laughs> they changed their licensing so you couldn't do that. And I think, I don't, I'm not sure how it, how it was all origin, but when we look at Cash Over Cloud, we're working... Like the clouds are definitely aware of what, what we're doing and, and they're happy because in the end, you know, we're helping them run more resources on their clouds and helping customers like be more successful on the cloud, which is really good for them. And so when we look at uh, HashiCorp, we have like console, which can run on Azure and you can install it through the Azure marketplace. And again, this is like you click button and install it, but all the servers and everything are being managed by our RSRE team. 
And then same thing for recently announced, we recently announced a HashiCorp cloud platform on Amazon. And the idea is you go through HashiCorp's portal and you click button install console into a VPC uh, in running in Amazon and you peer that VPC with your VPC. And now we're managing these console installation for you, but it's all running kind of on Amazon. Well, just to wind down, do you have any predictions for what will change in the next few years around the Kubernetes and service mesh ecosystem? <laughs> Definitely. I have some guesses. I can throw them out there. So I think you've seen Kelsey Hightower say this too, where Kubernetes is going to get more and more kind of like something that people don't care about. So the same way you don't really care about Linux, it's just there and it works for you. I do see that we're going to see more abstractions on top of Kubernetes and it's going to become less of this really big important thing and it's just more kind of like the way things are in the world. So I think that that's one thing that's going to kind of fade into the background and and you're going to be more focused on like Kubernetes API and how do you describe your app into Kubernetes API and less focused on Kubernetes itself. And then I think for service meshes, I don't think there's going to be a consolidation of, of service meshes where just one mesh wins out over everything. It's interesting that Kubernetes did kind of win out and it was like the the, the top Kubernetes, sorry, the top container orchestrator. But if you look at a lot of other different technology spaces, there hasn't been one tool that, that has like been the one that everyone uses. So for instance, CICD, there's Jenkins, CircleCI, Drone, Metrics, there's Prometheus, there's Datadog, right? So there's lots of different areas where there's multiple tools that exist and coexist. And so I think service mesh, we're not going to see a consolidation upon one service mesh, but each mesh is going to kind of find its niche and and, and thrive in that niche and, and have more people use it. And the pie is going to kind of grow. I go back to that talk about how in service mesh con, like 20 people out of 200 were running in production. Well, you know, you can see that there's just way more people that are going to end up running a service mesh and there's going to be more users of each mesh. And I think that's where I, I see it going. Okay. Well, it's been really great talking to you, Luke. I'm very grateful for you sharing your time and hopefully the service mesh ecosystem gets better and not, uh, not worse. So, uh, <laughs> that's a very, uh, boilerplate thing to say, but nonetheless, I hope it doesn't get worse. So, uh, Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. 